Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. He has a lot of great ideas. He's not a stupid man. He's worth $9 billion. I feel like our country is going down the drain. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There is no question that this is the person who will go to Washington, D.C. and be able to absolutely turn the place around. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the man whose cybersecurity advisor is his 10-year-old son, Baron. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So can we talk for a minute about Alicia Mikado? She's the 1996 winner of the Miss Universe beauty contest that Donald Trump owns and that NBC dropped last year because of Trump's racist comments about Mexicans. Hillary Clinton talked about her in the debate on Tuesday night. Trump liked to call her Miss Piggy and Miss Housekeeping, mocking her weight gain and her Latino heritage. Trump didn't deny any of that. Where did you find this? Where did you find this? He kept saying to Hillary. Mikado herself had more to say after the debate. Trump called her ugly. He called her fat. He went on Howard Stern and called her an eating machine. The only reason he didn't cyberbully her is that it hadn't been invented yet. The abuse helped give her an eating disorder. He always treated me like a little thing, Mikado said in a conference call with reporters. He treated me like trash. By the way, Mikado says she gained about 15 pounds. Now, this woman is standing up for herself and standing up to Donald Trump. So what does Trump do? He went on Fox News the next morning and insulted Alicia Mikado some more. She was the winner and she gained a massive amount of weight. And it was a real problem. We had a real problem. Not only that, her attitude. We had a real problem with her. You can just tell this is one of those grudges Trump will never let go of like Kazir and Ghazala Khan, like Rosie O'Donnell, like Judge Curiel. It's funny how the people Trump can't bear to have challenge him are almost always women or members of minority groups or both. Is there a pattern here? My guest today might have some insight. She's Nell Irvin Painter, an emeritus professor at Princeton and the author of books including Creating Black Americans and the History of White People. She's also a participant in a project called Historians on Donald Trump on Facebook. Hers is one of the most popular videos. I'll be back with her right after we do the tweets. Bernie Sanders gave Hillary the Democratic nomination when he gave up on the emails. That issue has only gotten bigger. Many on the team and staff of Bernie Sanders have been treated badly by the Hillary Clinton campaign. And they like Trump on trade a lot. The at Senator Ted Cruz endorsement was a wonderful surprise. I greatly appreciate his support. We will have a tremendous 
victory on November 8th. If dopey Mark Cuban of failed benefactor fame wants to sit in the front row, perhaps I will put Jennifer Flowers right alongside of him. Highly untalented Washington Post blogger Jennifer Rubin, a real dummy, never writes fairly about me. Why does Washington Post have low IQ people? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest today is Nell Irvin Painter. She is an emeritus professor of history at Princeton and the author of several books, including Creating Black Americans and the History of White People. Professor Painter, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. So you said in your video that without Barack Obama as president, there would not be Donald Trump as the Republican presidential nominee. I did. Why do you say that? Yeah, I said um, that Donald Trump... Uh, is a result of Barack Obama as president. And that is a kind of oversimplification, but it it includes a large kernel of truth. And that is that we have a long tradition in this country of violent reaction against changes in the racial status quo in which um, Black people and people of color are supposed to be at the bottom and not supposed to be jostling uh, white people for power or visibility or beauty or any of the other perquisites um, of whiteness. So in my video, I mention just a few of the many instances of this lashing out against, for instance, um, black civil rights in the 1960s, like the bombing, the church bombing in 1963 that killed um, three children. So my point there is that Barack Obama as president is like a gigantic red flag for people who want everything to stay the same. And so Donald Trump mm-hmm. is an example of the lashing out, and he's a big lashing out after a big provocation, you might say. I don't mean to say that the presidency of Barack Obama can be summed up as a provocation against white supremacy, but that's one part of it, and it helps to explain why, of all the people who have suffered since 2008 or in the 21st century, it's primarily white people who have flocked to Donald Trump. There are plenty of black people and Latino people and other people of color who have suffered longer and deeper in terms of economics, but they see the other part 
of Donald Trump's message, which is a white supremacist message. And surely white supremacy is a component of Trump's support. I mean, you've seen yes. it you've seen it very clearly in the sort of alt-right supporters. How do you determine how big a component it is? Because they're clearly components that are not purely or merely white backlash or racism. This is true. And I said in my video that this is part of his attraction, whether it's part of his attraction for each person or part of his attraction for various segments of his support. That is to be ascertained person by person. I don't mean to say that everyone who supports Donald Trump is either a white supremacist or supports white supremacy. But I do mean to say that without white supremacy, you would not have so great, so huge, as what Donald Trump might say, a wave of support for him. Although I guess you also have to ask, Professor Pater, is white supremacy or racism a feature or a bug in Donald Trump's campaign? That is, if you had a populist, nationalist, something like Donald Trump, who didn't express the kind of racial sentiment he does, would he be more popular or less popular? Uh, probably less popular. I mean, we had many, many other people running for president in a Republican primary. So there was a lot of choice. There were all sorts of alternatives to him. And this is the one that got the most traction. One thing that's notable about Trump's racism is that the explicit racism is directed mainly against Latinos and Muslims and not against African-Americans. Do you agree with that? And if, if you do or if you don't, why, why do you think that is? I think that there's been enough agitation around race as black to warn off people speaking politically. Um, there's been less inoculation against bigotry aimed at others. That's part of it. But another part is that black people who are, what, 0% or 1% of Trump supporters recognize bigotry when it's aimed at others as part of what is aimed at us as well. Right. So when he says Mexicans are rapists and murderers or we've got to keep the Muslims out, do African-Americans, should African-Americans understand that as referring obliquely to them? Or is it just about what he says it's about? Is it just about about Mexicans and Muslims? Well, first of all, I cannot speak for African-Americans in general. We are a population of 35, 38 million people. So no one person speaks for all those people. I speak for myself. I speak for myself as a citizen. Fair enough. However, I will say for myself that as I hear bigotry aimed at others, I feel involved. One thing that's particularly striking about Trump, and and you heard it in the debate the other night, 
is the way he talks about black neighborhoods and black urban nates in, in particular. Yeah. He has this vision of them as as violent and dysfunctional. I mean, he actually used the phrase, you go there, you get sh- and you get you shot. You get shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did, do you have any insight into how he developed this view? He may have had an experience in a, in a dangerous neighborhood that was mostly black, but how does he think that's the norm? I mean, he lives in New York City. He must have all sorts of contact with predominantly African-American neighborhoods that are nothing like that? No, I doubt very much that he has much contact with African-American neighborhoods. And I would also say that I suspect that there are thousands, tens of thousands, millions maybe of Americans who share that view, people who don't live in New York on the street level, uh, people who don't live in New Jersey as I do on the street level, and have day-to-day contacts with people who are black or brown or other non-white people. So if you live in a bubble and you don't experience others, you can have that stereotypical view. Professor Brin, I also wonder about how a historian like you thinks about Trump differently from the way non-historians do. You're putting him in a much longer context, obviously, but what does it mean to think historically about something that's happening like this phenomenon in our present politics? I think one difference comes out in simply knowing what has happened in the past in that non-historians, I suspect, are more likely to say, oh, how could this happen? Where did this come from? This is something that just popped up. This is the first time such a thing has taken place. And I think for historians who are cognizant of our national history, well, no, it's not the first time something kind of like this. It is the first time such a person with such views has become the candidate of one of our two major parties. But we have only to look back to the 60s and 70s, to George Wallace, for instance, to see the foreshadowing of this kind of thing. Do you think about Trump as someone who is simply ignorant of history or who has a skewed view of history or a view of history that's very different from the kind of understanding you have? I think it's all three. (laughs) I think he is very ignorant. And I think what we're seeing in this campaign is uh, a break between Americans who have gone to college in, say, the late 20th century, the early 21st century, and have been exposed to history and to literature, which has changed a lot from the time that Donald Trump and indeed Hillary Clinton and myself went to college because we went to college in the mid-20th century when history was all white and literature was all white. Things have changed. And what you learn in college in, say, 2005 or 2016 or 1998 is very different from what we learned. And so there's a break between people who have gone to college and people who haven't in terms of the support of Donald Trump. When you look to his supporters, it's it's interesting in terms of how they think about race. They are much like much more likely to think about race as an essential attribute as opposed to something 
arbitrary, accidental, insignificant, skin color as opposed to race. Yeah, but let us not pick on uh, Trump supporters in that way, because what you've described is much more general in our society. So it's not just them. It's not some default that they in particular have. Uh, Large numbers of Americans think about race in terms that we call essential. That is, it's a characteristic that kind of stands on its own that explains something about people. So um, what we're seeing is um, general American views writ large and cranked up. Let's think about the day after the election, and let's uh, let's assume a po- let's assume a positive outcome in which Donald Trump has not been elected president. Mm-hmm. But we're living in a country where forty percent plus of the electorate has voted for him. Yes. How do we deal with the things that motivated them to vote for him? The fear of the country becoming non-white or less white. The concern about the kinds of economic dislocations that, of of course, affect people of all races, but that white people may think have something to do with their whiteness. Well, I think um, no matter who wins the election, the economic issues have been so clearly on the table that at least there will be talk about resolving them. Whether or not there will be action is another issue, because... uh, some of the dislocations we can't address through public policy because they have to do with capitalism. And capitalism in the United States isn't going anywhere, at least not right away. And I think in terms of changing things dramatically, um, no matter who wins, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen either. Because I remember the 1970s and 80s when many of these same questions came up and same remedies were proposed. In the 1990s, for instance, when Get Tough on Crime entered entered the public discussion and entered federal and state policies, leading us to this wave of incarceration, at that point, the Black Caucus said, Yes, we need to be tough on crime, but we also need to address the fundamental issues, such as jobs and education. And those are the answers, again, whether or not we as a nation are ready to step up to that, I do not know. But the answers are not new. I didn't think we were living in a country where 40-plus percent of voters would vote for an openly racist candidate. And it leaves the question... How do we talk to each other after the election? Is there, do we need to be reconciled with these people or are we so, are we so frustrated and upset with them that there's not really a reconciliation in the offing after they voted for Donald Trump? I don't think there's a big reconciliation, but I must also add that you and I have been living in a different country. Uh, yes, although as you were saying, you, as you were saying yourself, Donald Trump lives in a kind of di- different country where he doesn't, yes, but he I doesn't, mean, yeah. You say, you were surprised that all these people could feel that way and vote that way. And I am not. Yes. I'm appalled, but I'm not surprised. Remember, you know, the whole birtherism business is not new. And some vast proportion of Republicans uh, believed or still believed that the president was not born in the United States and is not a Christian. And that is not new knowledge. That's been around, what, since uh, 2011? 
probably since 2008. So one thing, actually, I said uh, when I was on uh, Farid Zakaria's show that, and this was some time ago now, I said, you know, in, in one way, I have to thank Donald Trump for revealing the side of the United States that I live with all the time, that this was not a surprise, that this America is something I've known is there forever. The birtherism in particular is a, is a very valuable proxy in a way, because mm-hmm. if you ask people, are you racist? Of course, very few people will say yes. But mm-hmm. someone who is, supports or believes in birtherism almost certainly is. And they will say they, they accept that or credit that. Well, we've got two issues going on about racism. Is it a personal problem or is it a structural, cultural problem, a social issue? And I would tend more toward the second than the first. It's very easy to say, oh, you're a racist or oh, no, I'm not. When we all live in a society in which white supremacy is kind of taken for granted. And so that's very hard to get to. And it's also the answer to many of our problems, um, our social problems and our economic problems. So uh, we wonder how can Donald Trump believe this? Well, the air in our country, you have to do something to get out of it. Many have done that. Many have asked questions about assumptions. Many Americans no longer accept the assumptions of white supremacy. It's possible to do. However, if you don't ask questions, if you don't examine the truisms, the taken for granted, then you are breathing this air, you are drinking this water of our society. So it's a big deal, and it's hard. I've been speaking to the historian and author Nell Irvin Painter. Professor Painter, thanks for joining me on the show today. You're very welcome. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. He's a producing machine. That's not insulting, right? Slate's executive producer is Senior Piggy, Steve Lichtai. Can I say that? Steve, leave some brownies for the rest of us, okay? Andy Bowers is our chief content officer, or hair housekeeping, as we like to call him. Okay, not really. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. When he orders takeout, Trump gets the bill, and he never pays. And have you left us a rating and review in iTunes? You've got 40 days left to do it. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. So I want everyone to know that I could have easily won the debate on Monday night. I could have done just destroyed Hillary, but I decided not to. Out of respect, out of respect, I could have easily brought up the fact that Bill has had many, many, many affairs, many affairs. Also, I could have said certain things about Hillary that I don't want to say right now because I would never say these things about her being a lesbian with humor. But I wouldn't do that because I have class and dignity. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. 
So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.